good morning. It's good to be here worshiping with you today. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17. If you turn there and be prepared, last week we saw how David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem from the house of Obed-Edom where it had stayed for several months until David was sure that God's anger was no longer against Israel. And you remember perhaps that David had originally gone to pick up the ark at the house of Abinadab where it had previously been for 20 years. And an incident occurred when transporting it. And that was Uzzah having had the ark tip over, start to tip over it seemed, off of an ox cart. And then he had reached out with his hand to try to grab it. And we saw what happened in that passage, that God's holy wrath struck as a dead for touching the ark. And we spent last week trying to understand how important it is to remember that God is a holy God, and that he has given specific instructions for how his people are to approach him. And so the events of today's passage occur later. Tabernacle has been rebuilt, or it's been moved And it is according to God's specifications. And the ark has been placed in the Holy of Holies. And the wars with the Philistines are over. And peace is upon the land for the moment. And so we come to this passage. Would you stand as we read God's holy word, 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 17. Now when the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus thus says the Lord of hosts. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name. Like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down from your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father He shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, 
with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray. Lord, as we take in your word and as we try to understand what we have just read here, give us, I pray, insight, understanding. I pray that you would help us to apply these words to our own lives, even as we understand why you spoke them to David so many years ago. But more than anything, Lord, help us through the study of your word to worship you more, to see you as the exalted God that you are. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, our passage begins with a conversation that took place between King David and the prophet Nathan. And I envision David looking from his royal home over the city of Jerusalem, pleased by what he saw. People were settled now. Constant tension with the Philistines was over. The city of Jerusalem, recently taken in conquest from the Jebusites, appeared to be at peace, and all was well. You could, um, I, I, I like to envision this chapter taking place at night in the, the lights of the city twinkling, and, and it's a cool night like it was last night as Wendy and I stepped out into our front yard area and just breathed a sigh of. God is good. That's how I envision this moment. Because we hear that David looks out and he turns his attention to the tabernacle. and Something seems out of place. And what is out of place in David's mind is that even as beautiful as the tabernacle is with its colorful curtains of goat's hair, it still was a tent. And it just didn't seem right, does it? To have this kind of mobile complex sitting in the midst of a permanent city. The tabernacle was meant to change locations and here it is inside these secure walls. And then David looks and and he sees his own home and he sees this cedar wood house that he has spent a long time building And I don't know if there's a little bit of thought and self-awareness in, wow, how long did I take, and how much effort and expense did I take to build this house, and then looks back over at the tabernacle. Whatever it is, I I think David's motivation is probably complex, but it's, it's at its heart good. And he wants to build God something lavish, something permanent. And so we read in verse 2 that King David said to the prophet Nathan, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God is dwelling in a tent, and he shouldn't have something less than me. The ark of God is the symbol of God's presence more than anything else in the city, more than, more than me as a king should have a beautiful home. So I think he's thoughtful. I think he's appreciative of what God has done. He desires to honor him. And there's nothing, at least as far as we can see or should suspect, that is wrong 
what he intends. And and Nathan doesn't think so either because in verse 3, he says, go and do all that's in your heart. That's, That's Nathan saying, that sounds good, David. It's a great plan. For the Lord is with you, just do it. But that night, God has an unexpected response for Nathan. And you can see it in verse 5 where God says, would, would you build me a house to dwell in? I haven't lived in a house since the day that I brought forth the people of Israel out of Egypt. And everywhere that I went, whenever I moved with all the people of Israel, I never once spoke a word to all the judges whom I appointed to shepherd them. I never said, build me a house. Now, as you read that, maybe you think, well, God sounds a little grumpy there. Did he not appreciate God's good intentions? Had I been David, I might have been tempted to be a little self-defensive. But God, you don't understand. I'm not, I'm not trying to do something wrong. I'm actually not trying to insult you. I, I think you should have as nice nicer things than anyone else, including me, in this city. Why should I receive the honor of living in a cedar house and you live in a tent? But there's more that meets the eye to God's response, and I want us to see what's going on here. First, a couple simple things. One implication that comes from verse 6 is this. If it isn't broken, don't fix it. Why build a temple when the present tabernacle was perfectly adequate? See, God, I think, on at least for a simple thing, God wants to correct David's understanding that there's something wrong with the tabernacle. It's more than just mobility. That God had given the specific instructions for man, and it functioned flawlessly. God had been with his people His presence had been there symbolically between the the wings of the cherubim over the mercy seat of the ark. There was nothing that needed to be fixed. And then a second reason is found in verse 7. He says, I didn't ask for one. And because God had given the instructions to Israel in the first place, That is where the question should have been led. I think part of this is the fact that David doesn't go to Nathan and say, please inquire of the Lord if he would like me to build a temple. David just says, I'm going to build him a temple. But God had given specific instructions, and when when you really look into the tabernacle, and we don't have time today, we've done that in the past, where you look at all of the specifics of what God did in that tabernacle complex and where things were laid out and why things were in one room and another room and and so on, it was this display, really this heavenly display on earth. And there was much that communicated holiness and uh, things that were consecrated and the way God, God had things done. So... David, in some senses, I think, thought, I can improve upon this concept. So it relates back to that first reason, if it's not broke, don't fix it. But also, it's just a reminder, you know what? If God is going to want a temple, he will give you the instructions. You don't just tell God that he's going to get one from your hand. 
But there's something more here. And if you go back to verse 6, you'll see that God says, I have not dwelt in a house since the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt. And he actually describes himself moving around in a tent for the past several centuries with them. And implied by that description is this. While Israel is not yet settled, I will not settle. But, there, but wasn't Israel settled? Isn't that what David thought as we read those first few verses? I'm at peace, I'm settled, I've built myself a permanent dwelling, I'm surrounded by these tall walls with no intent to move. And yet if you look at verse 10, God says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more and violent men shall not afflict them anymore as formerly. So there was something about David and Nathan as they look out and they examine their surroundings and think we're settled that God says, not quite. You're looking at the wrong things. And until it's true that you truly are settled, I will not settle down. And, and as I think about that, you know, the, that statement is pretty remarkable. The creator of the universe says to a human king, until my people are settled, I will not settle. Where they go, I will go. And I will not rest until I give them rest. This is a God who is not ashamed to say that he has been moving about in a tent. You may be forced to revise your theology if you think that sovereignty and humility are mutually exclusive concepts. This is the same God as we were reminded this past Christmas in Philippians 2 that being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And of course, as we've often seen, how remarkable that John 1 describes Jesus as tabernacling in the flesh amongst his people. So this is a humble God. And he did not yet consider his people to be settled. And so what was left to do? That's the key question. What was... What was needed before God considered the people settled versus David and Nathan thinking that they were settled? And the key is in the next verses, starting with verse 12. This is the heart of First and Second Samuel. So look closely. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David didn't know it, but one of the key moments in redemptive history was about to occur. There have been previous pivotal moments, such as when God gave his law to Moses, Mount Sinai, or when he made his covenant with Abraham that we have recorded in Genesis 12. But here in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is this next great advance. God makes a covenant to establish David's throne forever. 
Now, we know that this didn't mean that David himself would somehow be an immortal king. Now, this isn't David Highlander, right? This is, God had said that the promise would unfold after David died and went to rest with his father. So there's clearly this understanding. There's, there's more than what is meant on the surface. And the promise also didn't mean that there would be an unbroken line of succession of David's children and grandchildren ruling on earthly thrones forever. What was meant here is that Jesus would one day come from David's line. And his throne would be a forever throne. And yes, there would be some reflection of that into earthly reality, and David's descendants would rule over Israel until the exile into Babylon, but the primary meaning of this covenant pointed towards Jesus, the son of David. It's one of the reasons why the gospel authors are so careful to tie the line of genealogy for Jesus back to David. And God's rejection of David's offer to build him a house is ultimately about grace. This is about grace here. David could not build God a house until God settled his people and built David a house. And it's the same with us. Until God does a work in you, you cannot accomplish anything meaningful for him. Because his work in you first establishes the context of what it means to work for him. And that's the way it's always been for God's people. He always builds a house for them first and then calls them to build a house for him. And there's even more here to grace that you need to see. Not only was God building David a house, the word being a play on Uh, the concept of legacy or dynasty. Not only is God building a dynasty through David, but God promises that nothing will cancel that promise. But you're saying there are some of those descendants of David that are just as bad as some of the kings that we've seen in the past. And that's true. Some of the the judges of the past, and some of the kings that will come over the northern kingdom of Israel, and so on. But in verses 12 through 13, we read that the promise will not end with David's death. David may rest with his fathers, but God says in verse 12, he will set up David's offspring after him. Death won't destroy the promise. Sin won't destroy the promise. Verses 14 to 15 say, I will be to your descendants, your children, your grandchildren, A father, they shall be to me as sons, and when they commit sin, I will discipline them. But my steadfast love will not depart from them. Your throne shall be established forever. Steadfast love forever. If the promise to David had depended upon the faithfulness of his grandsons and his son, the promise would have been doomed from the start. Probably would have ended with Solomon or with Rehoboam, right? And within a generation or two, it was gone. But God says that he will discipline, he will punish those who go astray, but the judgment will never go so far as to remove 
his covenantal love, his faithful promise from them. David's line would never be like Saul's line and come to a permanent end. And verse 16 again says, in your house, your kingdom forever before me. And so he uses this word forever twice in verse 16 and once in verse 13. And it's actually the high point of God's promise. It's the first time David has ever heard those words. And if you think about that for a moment, here's David who began as a shepherd. He spent years running from Saul. He saw the demise of Saul's line. And then God says to him, forever. What an astounding gift. It would move David to write in Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him? It's what prompts David here in verses 18 through 22 to respond, who am I? O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? Yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You've you've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. What what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord. Do you see how many times he says, O Lord God? It's as if he is overwhelmed by this announcement by God through Nathan. And he just keeps coming back. What more can I say to you? I'm just a man. What, are you that you're, what am I that you are mindful of me? You know your servant, O Lord God. What more can I say to you? Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there's none like you and there's no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. Here's David a moment before we've been thinking about the plans he's going to lay out to do something for God and he is struck instead to worship God because God changes the order of priority. And the glory of this promise is echoed and re-echoed again. We see it transforms David's life. So often in the Psalms that would come after this point, he is reiterating the greatness of God and the excellence of God. And then we see it in the prophetic books and then finally in Revelation where we hear this great praise, he being Jesus shall reign forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. More could be said and it should be said, but I want you to hear that keynote where God tells David, let death, let sin and time do what they will. They will never frustrate my gracious kingdom plan to build a house that will culminate in the king of kings. And so this child, a grandson of David, was born, and a son was given, and in him was no sin. And he conquered death and and sin and time, and he continues to reign over all things. And if this big promise to David was so sure and God was faithful to fulfill it, we can surely trust God's promises, can we not? But what more can we apply from this chapter? Here are a few things that I think directly relate to you and me. First, our highest, most noble ambition and goals are flawed by sin. 
We just have to recognize that even in this great moment where David seems to have pure motivation and desire, they were slightly flawed. They didn't fully understand God's purposes. And so it teaches us that no matter how well-intentioned our plans are for God and his work appear to be, they often fall short of the purity of thought, the motive that God requires. And so the first application is let us remember to take even that in prayer back to God. It is God who must accomplish great things through you and very often in spite of you. Second, no matter how high and lofty your goals and plans may be, somehow God's plans are always even more profound. Paul put it this way in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor? How could David have possibly imagined what God had in store? He couldn't. He still didn't. Even when he heard through Nathan, what he was still thinking was in the context of his children and his line and his dynasty. He was comparing it to Saul and what had happened. And God here promises even through death and sin to preserve David's line. Who's David? David's response is accurate, but he still doesn't understand fully God's purposes. Let that be a lesson to us. Paul goes on to say, or has given him a gift that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, it says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, or heart of man imagined. But the Spirit of God has begun to reveal that to us, his people. And what he has revealed to us even though it is but a glimpse, is amazing. Third application, the greatness and glory of God's presence and power are not to be interpreted in the light of how spectacular the surroundings and the environment are. We expect a big show. We want a big show. We want thunder and earthquakes. We imagine that God's going to be revealed when lightning strikes. And yet the prophet Elijah learned what we need to learn, and that is God's presence can be revealed even in a still, small voice. A whisper. It's not what we expect, but it's true of God. Israel in Jesus' time expected the Messiah to be revealed by means of the miraculous and the spectacular. The Corinthian church in the New Testament time, admired the showy evangelists who came masquerading as Christians. They admired them far more than the less spectacular Paul. Our Lord himself did not come in a blaze of glory and sensationalism. He came in such a way that there was nothing, says Isaiah, to commend him. Just on external appearance. Even today, there is a great deal of emphasis upon large, impressive churches. Let us be on guard against the false assumption that the larger and more impressive is greater proof of God's presence and power. 
I'm drawing this from the fact that David, in looking at the tabernacle, said this isn't sufficient. He needs cedar. He needs stone. He needs lavish. So we need to be on guard against the prideful thoughts of our own contribution to the kingdom of God or of thinking that God only really needs the gifted and the, and the talented. It is always God who carries us. It is always God who strengthens and works through us rather than us carrying him. And this is a good reminder. And finally, we learn that God is gracious. Look once more at verses 21 to 22. Because of your promise, David says, and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, what? You are great, O Lord God. There is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. See, at the end of the day, God wants to set our priorities straight. He wants to remind us that his purposes usually almost always are greater than what we can conceive and that our motives are sometimes tainted. But at the end of the day, God wants us to worship. He wants us to marvel at his grace. He wants us to ask, who are we that God should be mindful of us? What more can we say? You know, that's how we are supposed to leave every day from here as we are centered back again in the truths of God's word. We, are, we should be leaving with that thought of who am I? Who is your humble servant that you look upon me, that you should include me in your plan? What more can I say to you? I can't say anything else to you. I didn't do anything for you by coming to church this morning. You are the glorious king. You have reminded me of how much you have done for me. That's what every Sunday should be. Well, a commentator tells the story of King Louis XIV of France who called himself the Sun King. Should always be leery of, of that. He commanded that at his funeral in the Cathedral of Notre Dame that the entire cathedral should be darkened except for one candle that would be burning on his casket because the light of the Sun King had gone out. And when the court minister got up to give the eulogy, he walks over to the casket, blows out the light, and begins his message with, only God is great, only God is king. And that's what David learned. And as we leave chapter 7 this morning, I want you to step back once more with that gift of hindsight and realize again what God promised David. He promised Jesus. He promised the incarnation, the Son of God, who would save his people from their sins, and so much more. Augustine wrote beautifully of that promise when he, he said, the word of the Father by whom all time was created was made flesh and born in time for us, 
He, without his divine permission, no day completes its course, wished to have one of those days for his human birth. In the bosom of his father, he existed before all the cycles of the ages. Born of an earthly mother, he entered on the course of the years on that very day. The maker of man became man, that he, ruler of the stars, might be nourished at the breast, that he, the bread, might be hungry, that he, the fountain, might thirst, that he, the light, might sleep, that he, the way, might be wearied in the journey, that he, the truth, might be accused by false witness, that he, the judge of the living and dead, might be brought to trial by a mortal judge, that he, justice itself, might be condemned by the unjust." That he, discipline personified, might be scourged with a whip. That he, the foundation, might be suspended on a cross. That he, courage incarnate, might be weak. And he, security itself, might be wounded. That he, life itself, might die. And it's a moving statement by Augustine, and it's not just that Jesus died, but that he suffered that humiliating and painful death on a cross that he might reign forever, even as God said to David that day. And he paid a great price to settle his people. And so that last statement, I want you to not go away this morning just thinking we've finished the next chapter of 2 Samuel and we sang some familiar songs and we celebrated communion together and we had fellowship. But that God settled you. God settled you. He gave you a lasting heritage, an inheritance forever through Jesus Christ. Go away with the wonder at the grace of God who builds you a house. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are the God who has established your people, settled them in Jesus, given us a lasting inheritance and favor. Every promise is yes in him. And we, we who come with all of our plans that are often tainted by our own self-centered motives or our own thoughts of what would be great for you so often pale in the light of what you truly intend. And so you remind us today that you build us first a house, that you establish first your purposes and you call us to join you and then you call us to marvel in the fact Not just that you have settled us, not that you have just built us a house, but how wonderful that house is. Forever serving as kings and priests in the kingdom of God. How amazing and wonderful that is. And we thank you, even as David, in saying, who are we? We are nothing. We can say nothing more. How gracious you've been to us. In Jesus' name, amen.